All right. I'm uh, I'm not staying up here tonight. I'm gonna come down with you guys. Uh, if you are an elementary student, you can head with Katie. Oh, Lena, Zuri, you got like small classroom size, right? That's like makes you more more successful in life, is what I've heard. I don't know if that's anyway. That's not important. Uh, anyways. If you have a Bible, we're going John chapter 17, continuing our series in the Gospel according to John. Going to have some fun tonight in uh, a passage of Scripture. It's one of my my very favorites in all of Scripture uh, in John 17. Part of what Jesus, uh, or or what theologians refer to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the closing of his time with Jesus his disciples uh, and finishing after a long discourse that we've spent a few weeks in now we call the upper room discourse Jesus with his disciples before he's about to head off to be in the garden arrested sent to trial and then crucified Uh, Jesus finishes this discourse by looking up to heaven and praying and then what he includes in that prayer is uh, intense it's deep Uh, we scheduled in the way we we built this out we just scheduled a week for it uh, which means that at some point in the future we're going to circle back to the chapter John 17 and we'll we'll probably do like a three or four week mini series on this chapter alone because it's worth that much time Uh, but we're not going to do it as we've scheduled it now, uh, I just want to take one excerpt of it. Uh, in order to get there, though, uh, I do want to just kind of give you something philosophically that we're about and, and kind of connect this to why this would be so important, right? Um, in fact, two things that we really esteem and value and talk about a lot here at FBC. First is that uh, we prefer to spend our time in the worship of the Word and in the Word uh, focused on what we call expositional teaching or preaching. So uh, what that means is that what we typically do, uh, with, the, with very few exceptions, and there are exceptions, there's, there's times where it seems more appropriate for us to concentrate on a specific uh, issue or, or topic that we might see as valuable to teach through as a church, but for the vast majority or the bulk of our time and energy, we're going to basically sit down on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings, open up our Bibles to a selection of texts that we've decided we're going to work all the way through and just read that text and then interpret what it means and read and interpret and read and interpret. And so well, that's, that's called expositional teaching or preaching. And so what it means is that we don't uh, take the lead in how we decide what we're going to do next or what we're going to teach on or what we're going to emphasize. We let the text do that. Uh, that's really valuable for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, it leads me into the fullness of theological teaching and preaching, right? And so uh, I have my own kind of like soapbox issues and I have my own points of passion and I have the own things that like I think are really important and some of them you might agree with me and some of them you might go, ah, he talks about that an awful lot. I don't really care about that, right? The, the nature of if we were to just say, hey, Nick decide what we're going to talk about all the time, uh, is that we would probably get back to the same few issues again and again and again, and along with that, there are a lot of things that I don't ever want to talk about, 
and, and I'd rather just avoid. And, and maybe that's consciously, maybe it's even just subconsciously, maybe I just don't care about it that much, but maybe you do, and the scripture has something to say about it. And so if we were just selecting topics, it might be, hey, Nick, uh, why don't you ever talk about this, right? So, so one of the things that helps mitigate that and I think also puts central the Word of God rather than my personality, which doesn't need to be central, the Word of God does, uh, is that we just take, generally speaking, books of the Bible and say, hey, we're just going to teach through this, and we're going to look at what it says, and if it's a text that is uh, easy and encouraging, and we understand it well, and it inspires us and reminds us of some things that we're really excited about, uh, we'll walk through that that week, and that's what the text dictates for us. And if it's a text that is weighty and difficult, really challenges us, or maybe uh, reverses some of our preconceived notions of what we thought this was going to be, or what uh, we've always expected or, or learned from the Scripture, that maybe that's not actually true, uh, we're going to walk through that that week. And so we just kind of let the text guide us in that. And so something we're really committed to. Now the second thing that you hear us talk about frequently is the value of the church not as, a, as an event, not as a place, not as a scheduled time, uh, even as, as I was mentioning during our welcome time, right? Not as, as something that is formal and formality, but rather that the church finds its value and really its biblical definition in being the body of Christ in unity together, that the church is made up of believers who are worshiping the Lord together, corporately. That's why we gather, that's why we pray together, it's why we come and spend time worshiping together, because that's how the Bible defines church. The, the word in Greek, ekklesia, it means, it means assembly. It's, it's the saints gathering together. And so we frequently talk about the church in unity, following and worshiping Christ together. So, Here's, here's what I'm going to say. If we're committed to expositional teaching and preaching, letting the Bible dictate what we teach about, and if we frequently say that the church is meant to be a body of believers in unity, what we ought to find, and I think we do find, is that again and again and again in Scripture, you're going to find the heavy emphasis of the Bible, a major theme in the Bible, being placed on the church of God being a body in unity, right? Because we wouldn't talk about it a lot if the Bible didn't talk about it a lot. But you uh, hardly can turn the page in the scriptures without finding God emphasizing the value in his church being in unity under the headship and the authority of Jesus Christ. So, that said, it shouldn't be a big surprise to us that as Jesus is finishing this upper room discourse, he's, he's concluding this conversation he has with the disciples, he begins to pray for them, and the central theme of his prayer is, one, that they would proclaim the gospel, which is what we've been talking about over the last several weeks, right, that we would testify to who Jesus was. In fact, that's really a central component of what John's doing when he writes the gospel, is he's writing so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing you would have life in his name, that that's, that's the purpose of the gospel account, is who is Jesus? I want to testify to who he is. And second, that Jesus would pray that as they do so, they would do so in unity as one body of believers. 
Amen? So let's, let's look at it today, how Jesus says this, how he prays about it. Just spend some time observing uh, what he's going to call of us and, and how, that, um, how that's possible and, and then how that plays out for us today. All right, so that, that's, the, that's the three goals, uh, is, is, what is what is he calling us to? How could we possibly do what he's calling us to? And, and then, what's that look like? What's the application of that in our lives? All right, so come along with me. John 17, we're going to pick up in verse 20. And, and so here's what's happened in the first 19 verses. Verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these things. That's all of the things from the, chapter 13 through chapter 16. And then he, lifting up his eyes to heaven, said, Father... The hour has come, and then he's going to continue on. And so for the first five verses, Jesus is going to give some of the weightiest, heaviest theological truths about his relationship with the Father, what the Trinity looks like, and uh, his glory to come. Then he's going to shift focus a little bit, and he's going to talk about his 12 disciples, especially his, his 11 at the time, because Judas already left. Uh, but in this, what they're going to expect and praying for them. And then we pick up in verse 20, something really spectacular happens. He begins to talk about us, about you and I. Here's, here's what he says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. These are his disciples, the 11, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, let me help you with this. That means from the death and resurrection of Christ, everyone that believes in Christ outside of the disciples. Here's, here's how we know this, right? Um, when the New Testament scripture is written, it's written by who? Apostles or disciples, right? They, they get renamed apostles, and that's another sermon for another day. But ultimately, uh, one of the the authenticating factors for whether or not something would be included in what we call New Testament Scripture was it either had to be written by one of the apostles, which were one of the 11 disciples, or it had to be written by someone who was with one of the 11 apostles, right? So, uh, or 12 apostles. You can, again, we can talk about Paul some other day and how he's connected and grafted into that. But uh, here's, here's the idea. Either it's an apostle who writes that, like Matthew uh, or Peter, right? Or it's somebody who walked along with the disciples and wrote down their message, like Luke or Mark, who are writing along what the, what the apostles had said to them. And so out of this, not only do they go and begin to proclaim the gospel to all of the earth, but they also begin to pen the words of Scripture. And from this and from their ministry, the church is birthed and it begins to spread and it begins to multiply. And then somehow, in some way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years later, halfway around the globe, in Darlington, Wisconsin, sits a whole bunch of people who believe in the name of Jesus because of the word of the disciples that Jesus now, in verse 20, is praying for. He's praying for you and I, which is incredible, magnificent, and leads us to go, okay, so what is he going to ask 
of us. It's one of the most direct passages in all of Scripture applying to you and I. What's his, what's his goal? What does he want from us? Here's what it says. That they may all be one. Here's, here's what Jesus is going to claim. That he desires us to be one. All right, now th- that's an odd request. It's a hard request. And uh, I think our first tendency is to uh, jump to some conclusions as to what that means. And the conclusions that we jump to uh, tend to be wildly different. And so let's, let's use some scripture to define what Jesus means when he says that they may all be one. In fact, you go down to verse 22 and he says it again, that they may be one. His goal in what the church is, who we are as the church, is that we would be one. So what does that look like? Well, uh, first of all, Paul is going to frequently reiterate this encouragement through the epistles. As the church is forming and growing and doing its thing, Paul's going to say things like this. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. And then, and then here's what he says would complete our, his joy is that we would be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. That, that one ship was the same mind, the same love, the same spirit, and the same purpose. He defines it even more in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this uh, as he's describing what it looks like. He says there is one body. Now, he's, he's not talking about you and I and our physical body, but rather the body of Christ, the church. And he's speaking in a global sense, not just us as a local representation, but all those who know Jesus. There's one true church who believe in Jesus. Now, here's what defines them and knits them together. Watch how he's going to describe this in list format. One body, and one spirit. Now that's the Holy Spirit. What, what unites the church above all is the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believers. And so that same Holy Spirit, He's living in you. He's living in me. We talked about it just last week as we uh, get the promise from Jesus that He's going to send a helper. And what's the helper going to do? He's going to bring the body together to proclaim Jesus. Now, now look at what you're called then to do in this unity in the Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. What's the Spirit meant to do? It's meant to bring us together to proclaim the hope that is in Jesus. That hope that is eternal life given to us not by our own merit, not by our own volition, but rather by the power that is in Christ. Now he keeps going. He says, one Lord. Jesus. One faith in Jesus. One baptism, which is the the recognition of the commitment of the covenant that you have in faith to Jesus, that you would have that sealed in believer's baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times the Apostle Paul is going to use the word one in the same reflection, the same way that Jesus means this. Now, the identity then for us, foundational to who we are, is that you and I, if we know Christ, are one in Christ. 
that we are one body. Now, now let me give you two ways that this has a tendency to play itself out uh, in life, especially as we see it today. Um, first, here's, here's the condition. To be one in unity is only achieved when the object of our unity is more important than anything else in our life. Amen? Let me say that again. We can only be one body in unity when the object of our unity is more important. It supersedes anything else in your life. Because here's what happens when it doesn't. We're only artificially or superficially one body until something more important comes along. Right? And so, so frequently, we can have things that unite us to an extent. Right? Um, the, the, my favorite illustration for this, uh, because, because I think it, it agitates you guys a little bit, uh, is, is I, I love watching Michigan sports. Uh, my kids get older now, so I do it less and less than uh, I would really want to. Maybe someday I'll watch it again. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just get too old and bored with it. Uh, however, I, I enjoy it. Uh, there's two teams. Well, there's three teams that I really would love to watch them beat. It's Ohio State, Michigan State, and now Wisconsin. And anytime that happens, there's a great deal of joy that comes in this, right? And not only that, uh, when I go back to the Michigan area, or I connect with some people who are friends from the Michigan area, we have this kind of nice, comfortable, exciting unity where we can talk about that. In fact, I, I talked to my younger brother today in the topic of our conversation. It'll always come around to our basketball team or our football team or something that's going on with that. Why? Because it's, it's commonality and it's unity. But here's the thing, right? You and I might be divided over our view on which football team or which basketball team ought to win a specific game. Uh, and ultimately, we both know that it doesn't really matter that much. Amen? And likewise, I might uh, travel back to Michigan for a few days and unite with somebody over the football team or the basketball team. In fact, uh, I have on, on multiple occasions, I've been in airports traveling to some other part of the world. I always make it a point to put on my uh, Block M cap when I go into the airport because always, always what happens is somebody passing by in the other direction goes, go blue. And, and we exchange this moment of unity that lasts this long, and it will ultimately be fractured by any number of things that are way more important than what football team or basketball team I root for. Amen? Yet, here's, here's what's happened in the context of the church, is that uh, frequently you watch the church get distracted by a whole host of things that they hold as more important in their life than the recognition of their salvation in Jesus Christ, right? And it can wide range from political things to social things to churchy things, right? You watch churches get divided over the style of music or how loud the preacher is or how long he talks for, right? Like, we're not going to fight over those things because I'm going to be loud. I'm going to talk for a long time. It's just going to happen, right? Uh, you can be divided over a whole host of issues that show up in your life. You can be divided over a whole host of things that ultimately find their value and importance. I think what Jesus is calling for us, is praying for us when he says that we would be one, is that we would place him 
above and beyond all of that and recognize that anything else just walks us right into idolatry. Amen? Now, now here's, the, here's the second thing. Being one does not prohibit a differing of gifts, and it doesn't even prohibit a differing of perspectives about life. And, and that means that when Jesus says that they might be one, he doesn't mean that we would reach perfect consensus on everything, but rather that we would find a consensus on the most important of things. In fact, Paul's entire recognition in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, when he says one body, one spirit, through all, in all, that it would be connected, is followed up in verse 7 to say this, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus giving different gifts to some as he does to others for the equipping of the saints in the work of service and the building up of the body of Christ until we all obtain to the unity of the faith. So here's, here's what he's getting at. We all have a diversity of gifts, a diversity of understanding, a diversity of perspectives and backgrounds that we come to the table with. And the goal of those would be to bring unity, not simply consensus in all things, but rather a deep-rooted unity that finds its value and consensus in Christ. That means that, uh, one, in fact, I'll just, I'll just give you a really practical way that I, I, I see a great deal of concern uh, in the American church right now. It, it means that a unity in Christ runs, runs deeper than uh, pandemic response, right? And so, so you watch in the American church layers of fraction and division and brokenness that is really permeated within the church body over uh, whether or not this church was open or closed or whether or not they wore masks or whether or not they did this thing right or that thing right. And you watch churches that are literally breaking down and now they're, they're trying to pick up some of the pieces. And, and so in this, what you see is, is you see a missing of what Jesus is saying, that they would all be one over some things that ultimately distract in our peripheral to knowing Jesus Christ. Now, now, it doesn't mean that those things aren't really important. They are, right? But, but ultimately, those conclusions are grounded in the fact that we exist to glorify God together as one body. And so, um, and, and I'll just, like, side note, like, I'm so thankful to pastor you guys. Like, I, I just, I feel like in the midst of that, right, when you, when you look at a national level, uh, the church is, is really uh, kind of got punched in the face in the last year, hemorrhaging a little bit. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of concerns in a whole lot of places. And, and by the grace of God, we watched the body of Christ here really survive and thrive in this past year, learning a lot of things about what it looks like to care for one another in love, in accordance to the gospel. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, here's, here's the thing, right? In all of this, it, and, and really, if you have done anything in your life that involves a consistency of working with other people, here's what you're going to know. This is hard. To, to say that you would be united with people across boundaries, across differences, beyond things, that you 
don't come to the table with the same perspective about, with, with different backgrounds and different opinions, different social views, different political views, different ideological views, to be in unity, and even beyond that, just different personalities, and to care for one another in the church, that it is hard and darn near impossible. And here's what I would say, by a human perspective, I agree, and I think Jesus agrees, because watch how he's going to talk about this in his prayer to the Father. Go back with me to verse 21. That they may all be one. Then he says it this way. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He's going to go on in verse 22 and say, The glory which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one. Just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. It is hard. In fact, in, in human terms, for us to be a body of believers in unity, united around the cause of Christ, it's impossible without the empowering of the Lord. And so here's what he says. I'm, I'm going to take the glory of the glory of God that was given to me, and I'm giving it to them. He's referring here to after his departure, the Holy Spirit coming. And if you know Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The glory of God in part dwells in you to help you, to perfect you in this. In fact, the example that Jesus is giving is one of the clearest depictions of the Trinity or the triunity of God, God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together in perfect unity. And he's saying, that is what I mean to empower you to do this. It means that I, bigger than anything this world can offer, am coming to help you, to walk alongside you, and to bring you as the church into unity, ultimately seeing me as most valuable and most important in the world. And in fact, um, this is, I, I think this is so cool, right? Think about Genesis. If you're familiar with the Bible, it, it's works like this, Genesis 1 and 2, God uh, exists. Before anything else, God exists. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. As in, no, no matter, no time, no anything, just there's God, and now we start. And, and out of this, God begins to create. And, and the Bible says that he creates the heavens and the earth, and it, it begins as he's uh, working all of this and, and bringing form to the earth and populating the earth and putting people on the earth. And then uh, at the end of each day, it says he saw and he says it was good, that he's in this perfect balance and harmony with the universe that he is creating. And then it picks up in Genesis 1 at the beginning of the creation of mankind, and there's this, this really interesting thing. God says, let us make man in our image. Right? And, and so here is God, before the creation of human beings, speaking in plurality about himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why? Because they're in perfect unity with one another 
in relationship, creating a world unstained by sin before anything was broken, recognizing that from the get-go, the beauty of God is teaching us what it looks like to be relationally in unity into, connected with the glory of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus. Are you with me? You tracking with me so far? Okay, so, so then, here's, here's what's really cool. Okay, I did this marriage ceremony just a little bit ago, uh, and here's, here's how I do every single one that I've, I've ever done, maybe with the exception of one or two. Uh, I have everybody stand up, and the music changes, and the bride walks in, and who's she walking with? Yeah, her father, right? And, and they're walking down the aisle, and, and like the groom is standing right here, and he's trying not to cry, and like uh, mom of the bride is over here, and she's not even trying, just, you know, snot and tears everywhere, right? Like, and, and everybody's like, oh, she's so beautiful, and there's like this just kind of harmonious thing happening, and they get to the front, and they just stop. And I, I say, everybody stay standing, and, and here's, here's where I read from. Very next chapter, the Bible says this in Genesis 2. God has created the world. God is existing, watching his world exist. Sin has not yet entered. And what happens? The Bible says this, that there's something that's not good. Before sin. Before, before the eating of the fruit, before the you're out of the garden, before the, the blood and offerings forever, before the curse and the fall of man, God looks and says it's not good for man to be alone. You, you see, I believe we are wired, and Jesus, Jesus connecting back to this, from the get-go, you and I are meant to be relational. We're meant to be connected with one another. And ultimately, the church is meant to be the best reflection of that in all of humanity. That we, gathered together, are one people in unity, united by Christ. United by God, brought together, tapped into, a part of, and dwelling in us is the same Holy Spirit that keeps us and holds us in this perfect unity, one faith, one Lord, one God and Father, and we get to see relationally what that looks like because here's the promise of Jesus, the glory which you had given me, the Father giving to the Son, I have given to them, that's us, that they may be one just as we are one, the Son and the Father, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. It is hard. In fact, it's, it's massively hard for the church to be a united body. I would say it's impossible in human terms, but God didn't leave us to do it in our self-discipline or our human terms or our power. In fact, here's, here's why. Let's finish with this. What's the purpose of all this? Well, he does so supernaturally for a reason. So that, this is the end of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, he says it the same way. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved them. Here's, here's the purpose. In our unity, the world would see something that simply 
is not accomplished through human terms. The, the unity in Christ can't be faked. It's deep, it's genuine, and it's lasting, and it's supernatural in its nature. And so when the church is properly in unity, it becomes boldly evangelistic. Think, think about it this way. Um, in your time, especially if you've been, you've been at church for a long time in your life, here's, here's what I know. Churches that are healthy and unify and gospel-centric and loving of one another are churches that you, you wake up on the weekend and you, you want to be a part of. Amen? You want to be there. And then, if you've been in the context of church for some time, and, and you know what, praise the Lord that this isn't our season now, but, but it, it may be at some point again. It has been in the past. It's likely to be that way in the future. We're going to walk through seasons of that because of sin. But if your church is divided, and your church is angry with each other, and you exist where people are bickering and hostile towards one another, and you know that everybody's kind of walking on eggshells, you wake up on Sunday morning, you want to be there? Listen, I don't want to be here, right? Like, you don't want to be there either, right? Here's, here's the thing. This, well, let's not overcomplicate this when Jesus is talking about our unity proclaiming to the world that he was sent by the Father when we are perfected in unity, when we're walking in the love of Christ, it is magnetic. It's evangelistic in a way that draws people in. That doesn't mean the gospel isn't filled with words, and it doesn't mean that we don't have to say things and proclaim things, but here's my promise to you. If you are not in connection in unity relationally in the church of God your preaching is in vain amen and so Jesus prays not not that we would uh, just have the boldness to speak though he does at times right not not that we would just uh, live lives of righteousness though he does at times right those things he's certainly going to ask for but in this his last prayer with his disciples his paramount priority of what we are meant to be he says his desire is that God would help us be one so that the world would know that he was sent by God we would be one pray with him Lord we exist to proclaim your excellencies you called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And you chose us. You made us into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. That you, you knit us together as one people, one body, one bride of Christ for the purpose of telling, proclaiming to the world who you are. And so uh, I pray that we would continue to walk in, continue to rest in, continue to uh, just be a people united together. And, and that we would do so recognizing above all that the object of that is you. That, that you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are the intent and the focus of our lives. And that as we 
connect in that together, that you would continue to bring us deeper and deeper as a body, growing in love and care for one another, all to the glory of your name. Amen. And why don't you stand, let's, let's sing one more song, Proclaim the Lord together.